In episode 3 of Out of Play Area, we sit down with the one and only Mei Ling Tan, a senior game designer at Google Stadia in Montreal. I worked alongside Mei Ling as part of a diverse senior systems design team at WB Games Montreal on a legendary project codenamed Metallica, where she championed our live ops systems and I owned the AI. She drops knowledge on what it means to work in live ops as a social designer and the many layers to the different ways we play together, from matchmaking and how we integrate Twitch streams into our systems. She talks about the importance of establishing culture and community guidelines early and why we should make accessibility a priority. Also, while striving to make our play spaces much more inclusive than they currently are. We also go into how she broke into the industry at Game Brains in Malaysia and then making the jump into AAA at Ubisoft Singapore and more. On direct de la merveilleuse ville de Montréal. Please welcome Mei-Ling Tan. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs where the guests open up one-on-one -on -one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. It's an opportunity to talk shop with friends, right? And like fellow designers. And that's always a very fun thing to do. So thanks for setting this up. I like to ask, what are you sipping on? So I am drinking some mango flavored tea, black tea from Malaysia, from a tea plantation in Malaysia. It's a nice reminder of home. Mango flavored tea is the best. Is mango like a, a natural? Indigenous fruit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indigenous yeah. fruit. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what are you drinking? I got me, and I learned how to pronounce it today for the first time, a Roy Boss. So I got me a cinnamon <laughs> Roy Boss chai tea. Nice. Excellent choice. I almost went with that, but then I was like, no, I feel like a taste of home today. So Heck yeah. Good call. Good call. I, I love mangoes. Like, I think mm -hmm. that's my, my top sweet fruit more than like pineapple and blueberries and blow dragon fruit have you had lychees though lychee yeah or well lychee in a lot of parts of the world but lychee in north america apparently but they're like tiny right yeah they're tiny but they're juicy and they're like fragrant so good okay lychee lychee's yours because that's the yeah. thing with mango since it's a little bigger it's easier than <laughs> one big bite and they'd be like oh yeah and then you get the the cheek kind of yeah. curl. Like, oh, this is going to be great. So I'm so happy to have a tea finally with one of my guests. I, you know, I think it's a, it's a very apt drink considering how little sleep I've, I've been having. I could do with a bit of the caffeine to stay awake for this. So I guess let's get it right into it. Why are you losing sleep? Today is <laughs> Thursday, February 4th. So... It is day four after um, a bunch of us at Google Stadia just received massive news about our studio's first-party publishing being wound down um, due to some structural changes um, in the organization. Fortunately, me and a bunch of different people are you know, given the option to now seek out new opportunities in the games industry or within Google itself. So, you know, naturally, this is 
heavy news to process and you're like smack in the uh, the aftershock of everything. So this is history in the making, John. You're capturing history as it is being made. <laughs> Thank you for coming on and talking about it. I was, I was like, hey, we can be off the record. We don't have to talk about any of this stuff. Let's just talk about all the cool stuff you have done and what, it, what you're looking forward to doing. So mm-hmm. it's awesome to share. I, I offer this virtual therapeutic couch, right? Sometimes talking <laughs> into the ether is more freeing than not. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry, but at the same time, selfishly, I'm like happy for you too, because mm-hmm. it's like the floodgates of endless opportunity are going to come rushing your way to be like, oh my gosh, May, come here, come here, come work for us, come work for us. But at the same time, I'm sure Google has a ton of other cool products going on. So you're at this, that pivotal crossroads that all game developers wind up four, five, six, seven, eight times in their career. <laughs> Yeah, with everything that's happened, I'm just taking some time to let the dust settle, decompose myself, uh, and start thinking about really the type of design work that I enjoy doing and trying to align myself with the topics that I'm passionate about, aligning myself with teams that all are passionate about the same topics, right? And, um, and I think that it definitely is an opportunity for self-reflection, but also reflection of the kind of work that I want to carry on doing, what inspires me and what, what I'm passionate about. Yo, let me jump in to emphasize to the listeners the gravity of these words of wisdom, May. For any of us that go through a change in a relationship or a partnership, be it professional or whatever, it's so important to do exactly what you're doing, which is taking a step or 10 back, looking inward, taking inventory, and really give yourself the time to assess where your life is, where you want to take it, what have you learned as a result of the partnership that you just came out of or the breakup, and and see what it is that will drive you to be your best self and bring out your best work. What have you come to realize as a result? I think over the past few years, I've really come to discover that the, the topic that interests me the most is social design, right? Uh, there's so much to do in this area. There's so much to, to still learn about how people consume games um, with friends in a large community and, and the entire ecosystem around games that there's a lot of work to be done in, in this area. And games is like the perfect place to bring people together. And I love that, Bear, because under that gigantic game design umbrella, that to me is fairly new. That's the, so, the whole social design element, even like online community design. I, I I don't, that's not something I normally see or it even comes across my desk to be like, all right, we need a new social designer, right? Or, or anything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Even when we worked, even when we briefly worked together at Warner Brothers Montreal, mm-hmm. you came aboard as our online yeah, like a live systems design. Live systems, yeah. Go. Live live systems. Okay, so is that is that similar? Is that related to live yeah. systems? Yeah, it definitely is highly intertwined um, as a as a field. Like you can't build social systems without some form of uh, a service wrapped around it, right? Like you with social a lot of social features, you need things during gameplay, some form of 
ability to connect players together, whether it's through some form of server system or matchmaking system. You need to have services for players to be able to connect, speak to each other, communicate, etc. So that all comes under live services as a huge umbrella. But social design is like a, a very specialized um, focus within the umbrella of life design. So, okay. Yeah, so pretty this is pretty new too, I imagine. Like yeah, yeah. Like cutting edge, undiscovered, uncharted planet, first woman on the moon setting like <laughs> I'm paving the way, I'm I'm, defi- I'm I'm defining the papers, I'm figuring this out kind of thing. Or has there been precedent? Have you studied in this realm or, or yeah, I'm curious. Play has always been inherently social, like a lot of us even when we were playing single-player games, right? Um, you, we all have memories of we're sitting on the couch and we're watching a friend play, or we have a bunch of kids gathered around just a machine watching some other person just take down another person at an arcade, for example, right? Like play has always been this magnet to to draw people together, and even in really strong narrative experiences, you build a community around people who have. Sh- shared that same experience as you. It's, oh man, I really love that character. I, I, you know, I, sh- I shared that emotional impact when I was going through this game. Like Being able to tell those stories and being able to connect at its base is makes that whole experience really, really social. Um, but of course, you know, when, when I'm talking about social play, it really is more focused on multiplayer games. And games have been doing this since its inception, right? Like Pong. It's a two-player game. The yeah. world's first multiplayer game. It just wasn't articulated as a social design. But hey, you put two people playing a yeah. game together. It's yeah. a multiplayer. You can look at the old bar, like flat table cabinets, right? And even the fact mm-hmm. that you work face-to-face with each other was a very conscious design decision, right? Like mm-hmm. As opposed to, hey, you're sitting on together next to each other where you can elbow the person playing it. I love that you're touching on that, right? What I'm used to being multiplayer back in the day is all offline. Mm-hmm. And so as you scale out and you take it over the web, the need for deeper thinking to how now do we connect each other beyond just like best connection, proximity, right? Or, or like skill mm-hmm. level, right? Like that's where we started. So I'm super, I'm super interested. Like I've been looking forward to this to be like, wow, where, where do we go? Like where, where, what, what are the things you're looking at beyond those obvious things? With a lot of games, uh, you touched on it and that's like the, the, the giant transition from a very couch or in-person experience to something that is now like a, a moderated experience. Like you have you have to connect online. So you're not necessarily always seeing the people that you're playing with. You're playing with anyone on the internet. So there's that sense of anonymity. You don't know the 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 race, the gender, the nationality of the person that, that you're playing with, but then you're bonding over this incredible connection. And we look at games like WoW, which is probably the longest running MMO ever and they still have yeah. people logging in right because still yeah was it at like yeah. 20 plus years yeah yeah and and people log in they have great content and gameplay but it's mainly because of the strong community right you've made friends 
And it's going to your local bar and meeting up with your friends. It's, you go there, you'll you'll run into the regulars, right? Like, hey, you know, <laughs> guy, he's always there, right at the counter. You know where to find him. And yeah, that familiarity, that yeah. that welcoming, inviting space, and you've, you've carved out. Exactly, and and games have that incredible capacity to create this sense of belonging for people. People, because there's a platform now. They're able to find others who share the same interest as them,、um, share the same background as them, and and this creates a sense of belonging. It's like this: these are my people, right? And yeah, your tribe. Exactly. Tribe, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to be able to surface those differences. Sorry, surface the similarities that we have with each other, right? Either through gameplay style, whether it's something that's really focused in the gameplay. Itself,、uh, we see this with games like GTA Online. We hear about the popularity of the role-playing servers, where everyone who's just there and, and hardcore into their characters, like they can find other people who also share that kind of like way of playing. So that's really focused and, and centered around gameplay. But then you also have really diverse communities around games like The Sims. Where、yeah. you know people can connect because this is my identity. This LGBTQ community is really well represented in in The Sims, right? And it is a, a thriving community because of the amount of self expression that game allows. People can be free to be themselves and find other people who also share the same taste as them. For example, games have this capacity to really bring people together and allow them to to. Find and express their their self identity. Totally, the fact that these games have built out these, and I've I've tried to speak to everybody because、mm-hmm. that's an initiative we're trying to work on is having this base character customization system that allows for the maximum representation and build、mm-hmm. possibilities that、mm-hmm. that can encompass everybody and. I know my mind always favors. Hey, how do we find the greatest common denominator to encompass the most possible variances that we can?、Mm-hmm. But I'm starting to feel like that's the wrong way to think about it. Right? You have to、mm-hmm. work in. Right? Yeah. I, I think you're right in the in 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 nailing the point that you know this needs to come from multiple different direction.、Um, Radical self-expression comes at the price of having psychological safety in the、mm. community that you're in. Right, you're free to express yourself if you know the people around you aren't gonna make fun of you or harass you for your choices. And creating that safe space is a very deliberate choice, right?、Um, how do you build that trust with your community, knowing that? Yeah, whatever I am, and and however I represent myself in the game, I am in real life. People are gonna accept me. They're not gonna question my choices or make fun of me or、mm-hmm. harass me because of that. And that's also a large part of social design is understanding how to create psychological safety and trust between players in online spaces. And and I love that it's still game design at the end of the day. It's user experience design. But there are a lot of gameplay systems that sometimes, you know, if we don't put careful deliberation into the design process, can enable people to do really horrible things to each other, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah being able to troll each other or harass each other through gameplay, you can really ruin someone's session、Absolutely. if the designers 
don't think about affordances and the interactions that are available in the game. So these need a lot of thought. Yeah, I love that you go there because a lot of the teams I've worked on, we haven't traditionally pushed those boundaries because we're all kind of playing the game as prescribed, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and so as I've had a chance to work with bigger teams or, or more diverse teams or people mm-hmm. with all sorts of temperaments that see these edge cases and these boundaries and, oh, let me, let, you know, I speak a different language. So let me throw the, these words into whatever filters we've set up to safeguard, or I'm from a different belief, right? And then that, those gestures mean something completely different where I'm from, right? So oh, like, yeah. We shouldn't allow those gestures, right? You wouldn't catch that if you want uh, looking at it from only one perspective or one lens. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And when you open up your spaces and you want to welcome many different people into those spaces, you exactly need to think about um, those different touch points and, and experiences that you can see through these different lenses, like you mentioned, right? Because of my personal experience, my personal journey, something... Uh, a word or a gesture can mean a very dance. <laughs> yeah, a dance, yeah. Right? exactly. It can can mean something very different, and and this goes into the whole topic of you know why it's so important to have diverse voices at the table when you're building out your game because it's impossible to be able to capture that if you have a, a very limited set of perspectives. Uh, yeah, in the team. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. That's a part of what I'm hoping to put out there with the show is bring all the people that I've worked with to show aspiring developers from the outside looking in or even current mm-hmm. veterans, right? Like ready to leave or like, why should I stay? Right. And it's all, Hey man, we need more people to challenge all of us. Right. Yeah. Of new ways of looking at things and new things to consider or think about. Yeah. So it's wonderful to talk about these things because what other better way than being able to grow from the inside as as developers mm-hmm. than just, okay, I'm trying to make this really engaging experience for myself or for the greater good? Mm-hmm. Because it's awesome from an artistic perspective, right, to be able to push boundaries. Yeah. But then it also makes perfect business sense from corporate numbers-wise in terms of, hey, we want our games to reach the biggest amount of people possible, right? That, that mm-hmm. invites the most amount of people to come play. So for once, it's a common goal from the artistic side and the business side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and I think that social design has a huge role to play in ensuring that you reach a wide audience, you reach your financial targets, but it, having a strong community around your game also ensures that your product has longer tail people stick with it for a much longer time because content will be able to satisfy your players up to a certain point um and then the rest of the 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 community themselves are the ones who are generating more content for each other so this is why you know um multiplayer skill-based pvp games have hundreds and thousands, millions of players. You're you're League of Legends, right? Like you'll never run out of players who are competing against each other, trying to prove who has the better skill. So mm-hmm. you know, it makes sense from a financial standpoint. It makes sense from a strong branding standpoint. It makes sense for a strong community around the game that you're building, right? It's, it's this fuel that 
yeah keeps a, a license alive. So there's definitely a lot of sense to you know in good strong social experiences in your game. I wanted to ask because something that I'm very far away from, mm-hmm. and I'm curious if it overlaps or plays an element in that, or is it more marketing or community management side? Mm-hmm. Is the like Twitch streaming hooks or incentives or systems, right? Something we played with at Amazon, or I think games like Dead Cells have mm-hmm. this integration with Twitch chat feeding yeah. the gameplay at runtime, right? So I wonder if this is an element of live services and social design, or is it more, I guess, final mile community facing? I'm not sure. It definitely does have a strong social element to it, right? Because when, when we're building out those mechanics and the types of interactions that streamers or content creators can have with their viewers Twitch extensions and you know building these sorts of um, interaction points between streamers content creators and um, their viewers that's definitely part of social design because when we're building those out we need to make sure and understand clearly the impact that it can have on the streamers experience the experience of potentially other players who are in the stream with the streamers too, right? And the need to ensure that they can have a safe streaming session. So what we saw come up a lot with Battle Royale type games, right? In in Fortnite, for example, stream sniping was a huge issue um, back in the days where players would hunt down celebrities in the game. So if you're ninja, the moment you pop in, Everyone's just beelining it for you, right? So it's just like, it's it's impossible to have a decent game session when you're that famous. Uh, is that the equivalent of photobombing? Like, it's, oh, I know if I'm near them, I'll be on their stream kind of thing? Not even, right? Like, they want to be the first person to, to off you because you get, like, a, a, a nice kill log of you are the that's one who true. killed Ninja and, and every true. player on Ninja's stream is going to see that this Man. kid is the one who, who took it on. That's part of social interaction that you have to also be very wary about, right? What are the uh, safeguards or, or, or um, structure they can put in place so these people can also have a good experience in your game, a good yeah. multiplayer experience in your game. Yeah, that's definitely examples of things where it's not outside the realm of social design, right? You also don't want the game to be game-breaking for the streamer because, you know, the, their entire uh, bunch of viewers are just, like, <laughs> just destroying their session by <laughs> just dropping bombs or just trying to kill them in the stream. So, you know, yep. there's a... A sense of game designer, yeah, that needs to be taken into consideration as well because that is part of the community experience of building a game. Man, yeah, I'm really glad to have, again, even when the the brief time we worked together, right, it's like I was always looking to you to be like, man, May, super happy you're on the team because this is a whole bag of problems that, I don't want to have to worry about, or I'm glad you're owning and I can contribute or throw like random edge cases at you to be like, Hey, did you think about this? You think about that? Yeah. It's a huge huge space. 
it is a huge space. And I think that one of the, the mindset changes that I also hope people will have gradually in, in the industry is that it doesn't just become the um, responsibility of the social designers on their team to, hey, this is all on your shoulder, go fix it and, and go figure it out. Because that used to be the way that people thought about social design, right? Where not a lot of considerations or, or deliberate choices were made during gameplay because people were just focusing on the fun. But we just got to make this as fun as it can be. And then if the community is toxic, let the com devs deal with it, right? We're just going to yeah. put a whole bunch of features to bring down the ban hammer en masse yeah. on a whole bunch of bad players in the game. But over time, we've really improved our understanding of the causes of disruptive behavior in games and we're getting better at you know implementing rules and, and methods to enforce positive behavior in games right it's yeah. not just about bringing down the ban hammer on players uh, regardless of what they're doing but being able to really react in a way that helps players not repeat their offenses this is ex it, building out social systems for disruptive behavior is very similar to how the prison system works right just having this rotating revolving door system just doesn't work people are just gonna keep repeating the same mistakes without trying to improve or, or get out of the system so social design is, is pretty much that We're trying to prevent players from repeating the same mistakes um, reducing the impact of disruptive behavior to make sure, hey, if someone's having a bad day, and we all have that, like, had yeah. a bad day at work, lost what your job. Your steam off. <laughs> yeah, <sighs> and then you jump, on a, you jump on a game, right? You're having a bad day, your teammate does something, and then you lose it, and then you yell at them um, on voice chat. Mm -hmm. What happens? That person's going to have a bad day as well because you ruined their session. They're feeling bad. They're going to yell at another player. This just becomes a really contagious wave, yeah. right? Everyone has bad moments and try to reduce the impact of it so not as many people get exposed to it. Give players a, a way to walk it off. It's like, hey, you're yeah. having a bad day, you know? <laughs> Interesting, right? Because I think we've all definitely been there. And like you said, the first knee-jerk reaction is negative reinforcement, right? Yeah. You did something that we consider or we flagged harmful or negative, right? So mm. we're going to kick you or boot you or temporarily suspend you or you lose a life or yeah. something like that, right? And that'll only get you so far. Whereas I think I've learned from having a puppy, I can speak to like my brothers and sisters, parents of my nieces and nephews, right? That you get a lot farther with with honey, right? With positive reinforcement mm -hmm. or encouragement for, as opposed to punishing the thing that was wrong, you're rewarding the thing that's good. Yeah. And there's that the tail end of things, right? Like when players have already reacted in a way um, in, to a, a certain situation, but we that whole process has to start even way before that. You have to set rules or just set the culture mm. or... The community that you're in it has to start from there right like you have to tell people it's around here this is how we treat each other right like we don't call each other names we don't like ruin each other's games we're always respectful even if we lose right everyone's yeah. just here to have fun don't that's awesome because seriously. yeah because mm -hmm. then your community becomes they kind of self-police yeah uh, I, I like what you said there right like before anything is ever even made, that you're already putting things in place to 
build a certain culture. Because mm-hmm. you can even say the same thing about our, our own teams and studio, right? Like if yeah. you install a certain culture, it reinforces itself versus having to be told mm-hmm. or corrected. Or- exactly. Yeah. And this is why social design does have a bigger role to play, right? Because if you get the team to understand the role or the pillars in which your game is built around, and these are the values of the game, it is reflected in all the systems that you're building, right? Not just the social systems, but the game feel, the gunplay, the reward system, the progression system. It's It, it all comes together to coalesce around this player experience, right? You want people to be nice to each other, but... Here's a, a concrete example. If you tell players to be like, hey, we want people to be generous with each other, but then the way that the game implements, for example, its health system is that it's a health pack that only one person in the team can pick up. So it's every man for himself, right? Everyone's just going to, man, I need that, if not you. Survival. It teaches people yeah, to be like, yeah, be selfish. Exactly. Versus the conscious choice of, no, it's okay. You don't have to fight for it. Like everyone gets their own instance of yeah. that pack. Then... It's like, it's cool, right? We're not all fighting for the same scarcity of resource. And that's just a deliberate design choice. How and why you pick one choice over the other, whether it's zero sum or it's replicated for everyone, has a huge impact on how they perceive each other in the game. Yeah, that's a good call because I can see an economy designer coming. No, and it typically happens when people approach a game along two hemispheres, being like, hey, we build a game for one player and then we attack on the multiplayer, right? And I think it leads to examples like that. It was like, no, but the whole economy is going to be thrown out of whack that way. So mm-hmm. I like what you're saying in terms of thinking about these things early on to be all-encompassing and multiplayer-facing. Mm-hmm. So that instancing health packs doesn't break the whole game balance of even if it's like survival mm-hmm. horror yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, there is a measure of that, right? Because understandably, you want to create that that sense of tension. You want to create that sense of desperateness with the players. It's like, oh, I want to create this point of like contention between players. And mm-hmm. it can work, but you have to understand when to use it and how to use it. Another example here, it's like, if we were playing together, right? We know each other. I... I know what you're like. We've been friends for a while. There's a level of trust established between us. But if we were complete strangers, right, there's a whole room for miscommunication to happen and misinterpretation of each other's interactions with each other. I'm just going to think, man, that guy's super selfish. He just like hogged all the resources for himself. Like, I don't know that. There's no trust between us. Like thinking and looking at design through the lens of what is the level of relationship that players have with each other is super important as well. So requiring complete strangers who can't or may not be talking to each other directly to share, sacrifice things when they're not ready is pushing the boundaries of positive interaction too. So there's a lot of ways to, to, to approach this topic and to think about that through the lens of basic mechanics and, and gameplay. Is that something you've ever measured or quantified? First of all, let me ask, mm-hmm. is matchmaking an, a realm that you oversee or speak about? And, yeah. and if so, is player familiarity a lever or a, a, a value that you consider? 
right? Like, hey, are they friends? Are they not friends, right? Is it just, is it binary or is it like, hey, they've played X games together, right? Or something mm-hmm. like that. Like the topic of matchmaking through pre-existing player network or familiarity with each other have I've had that discussion before, but it's never been something that teams have really been able to figure out, right? Because your connection to each other, it's more a really elaborate They call it like your social graph, right? It's like some massive web. So, you know, if you're trying to match someone based on their social connections, it's like, do I match you with friend A A or friend B? Who, Who are you closer with? who's going to be matched into that graph then? Like you have to also take into consideration friend B's social graph and pulling along that line. It just becomes this really long unraveling threat, right? Because of this really complex network. And when you're trying to build and optimize matchmaking systems for speed and quality of matches, that becomes a factor that a lot of people give up because it is a very complex. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's not important. It adds like two seconds to the matchmaking. We got to cut yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. It's also, which is more important in the in the skill-based game? Like, is it more imperative to find you equal opponents who match your skill level? Or is it more important that you join up with friend B because they were online yeah. at the same time? <laughs> there already are other features that kind of like address that need. Party systems. Oh yeah, if, if we wanted to play together. We can fulfill that need through party systems or through clans or guild systems that act as like a, a container or a bucket for people to mm-hmm. be able to hook up and play together. So matchmaking systems then take on a very different role, right? They're just there to find you high quality, worthy opponents to... to worthy fodder. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because... <laughs> They're just a means for me to get my sweet legendary weapon or <laughs> cosmetic upgrade. That's exactly. all I'm looking for. Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah. So what you're saying is that I, I should go back and start playing games online and trust the matchmaking. Because I'm older now and I, I don't got time. I just want to play with buddies. And if my buddies aren't online, I don't go online. That, that's kind of the state I'm in. You and lots of other people too, right? Like where we're all there, it's like uh, I prefer to play games with friends and that's like how I connect with people too, right? Like games, it's just a platform or an excuse to just hang out, right? So I find myself like over time gravitating towards games that have a more cozy, a more chill vibe because then we're not just trying to destroy a bunch of people. The opposing team. What is a what's a, what are you playing now then to satisfy that that cozy social feel? I'm I'm always on the market to 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 to, to find cozy, cooperative, collaborative with friends. So um, I'm towards the tail end of this really fun indie game called Scrap Mechanics. It's essentially feels like Minecraft with. Lego technique. You dig around for resources, you harvest them, but then you can also go like super deep into the whole building out different automation systems. You can build out your own vehicles, you can build out like all these like crazy do that with the modular pieces that they give you. It's it's super fun. So it's just like a It looks pretty. Yeah. It's very stylish. 
that was the game that uh, I spent a bit of time how, in. How have you liked the whole pandemic and, and working from home and designing from home with your team? And how's that been going? I'm curious if you have any like insights, what you like, what you don't like, and ways of still keeping productivity or like that team camaraderie as high mm-hmm. as possible? Yes, I think it's it's so interesting how similar it is to social design, right? Everything oh. that you do and, and how you work as a team has to be deliberate, right? Like you can't slack off. You have to put effort into making sure that everyone feels included, that their voices are heard. You don't have someone who just logs in with the camera and, and, and the microphone muted and doesn't do anything for the whole meeting. You don't know if, you know, they're not participating because they don't feel like they fit in or their voices are heard or maybe they're more comfortable working in, in other sorts of solutions. But everything has to be really deliberate and, and to make sure that everyone's voices are, are heard even more, especially when we're working remotely. I love not having to commute, especially right now. winters. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not like waiting for the bus in the cold. Very happy camper. The fact that I don't have to commute into work but definitely does pose a challenge right like communication is tough when you don't see each other it's harder to read body languages you don't even know if your your co-workers have feet (laughs) they're just (laughs) floating torsos yeah (laughs) right and so you know people have to work extra hard to make sure that you're connecting with each other an extra layer of effort goes into it Exactly. So I learned a lot in, in my time and, and and I consider myself really fortunate to have been able to work at Google during the pandemic as well, because I, with the sheer amount of resources, people have shared lots of best practices to mm-hmm. run and work in teams in a, in a truly thoughtful, inclusive and equitable way to make sure that everyone is able to feel like they're included and productive and and uh, a contributing member of the team. And one of the few things that I've learned is that not everyone, like I mentioned, is is comfortable having their cameras or just speaking in a meeting. And if those are the only opinions, for example, that you're taking into consideration, then you're over-indexing people on, on people who are more vocal are comfortable being on stage but then the the more quiet folks are going to end up being on the side and not heard of so thinking about more than just one way for people to be able to contribute ideas for example if you're having a meeting think about other ways that people can chime in that not that doesn't just rely on speaking up during uh, a video call have a, a running live document on the side that people can type into um Give people, one. yeah, a chance to spend some time, think about their thoughts and come back the next day and, and still add to that document, right? There are people who are, who process information a bit more slowly. Yeah. They take time to digest everything that's coming through and then give them that room to be able to mull over things. That's entirely uh, me. That's a good one. That's a good one. I'm curious, like when you were at Motive, mm-hmm. did you guys use G Suite? Yes, we did. Yeah. So I, I will say... I'm, this is the first time I use G Suite at any job I've worked. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like, what am I doing? But my personal Gmail is logged in and my Chrome account. And it's, oh, no, I have to log out. And I, <laughs> it was, there was some friction there. But yeah. I will say that it has been awesome to 
do the whole collaborative document thing. I, I really like what you said. We, we would be in Zoom and we would have a Google Doc open slides or doc or uh, we would even open up like the Jamboard or the Google Drawing and we could just yeah. whiteboard that way. Uh, yeah. And then you throw in Zoom annotate and it's a party. But I really love what you're saying because it even happens in, in live meetings. If you can remember that far ago when we were mm -hmm. all in the room together physically, mm -hmm. it usually, it's, it's very common that you have the more pensive types not speaking up versus yeah. the, the very vocal extroverted people taking up a lot of space. Mm -hmm. This has been an equalizer because both people or a, a big part of the team can be contributing simultaneously, right? People taking yeah. notes, people drawing what people are saying or trying to visualize the concept being talked about. So mm -hmm. I really like that idea. And I want to emphasize that to listeners, right? Mm -hmm. Be active, contribute using what your superpower. If you're a great drawer, if you're a great writer, if you're a great spreadsheeter, all that, do it. And share yeah. that. I think that's the best part is to be able to come out of a meeting and catch up in the chat and see the links and be like, oh, great. Oh, I, I forgot we said that, right? And have just really awesome collaborative notes mm -hmm. versus exactly. just the one person that took the notes and then has to <laughs> inscribe them or whatever. Yeah. And I think I, I hope that this is something that we carry on even after the, the pandemic, right? Like when people actually go back on site and, and work face-to-face -face with each other, hope that they carry these sorts of sensibilities and, and habits with them into real-life uh, uh, spaces as well. So yeah. it just opens up more avenues for people to contribute. Yeah, it's actually cool. Like, there is etiquette that we were forced to learn. Like, you can't all speak at the same time <laughs> yes. online. Yeah. And you can in real life. You could have your little side conversations. <laughs> So I hope that that carries over, right? To be like, haven't heard from you in a while, you know, mm -hmm. your turn or whatever, or some yeah. some some mechanism. But yeah. I'm with you. There's a lot of good things that we've been forced to learn that I hope we carry with us back into the real world post 2021 or yeah. hopefully this year. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. so, under the big umbrella of UX player empathy, building, getting the most people playing your game mm -hmm. is is an aspect of it, building it to be more accessible, not only more inclusive, or is that are they yeah. more accessible means more inclusive naturally? The, you know, building your product to be accessible means that, you know, you do want people to feel like, yeah, I, I can use it, right? Inclusive just takes it a step further, um, accessible. I think like the analogy is like, you know, being accessible is like you're you're welcomed and you're invited to the party, but being inclusive is you know being invited to dance. So yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you yeah. really feel like you're part of the community, right? Um, you're not yeah, just like yeah. <laughs> the user of it. Um, here's the mic, or here's the dance floor, or mm -hmm. here's the the ticket for the thing. I think that, you know having inclusive and thought through design when you're building with a problem to solve in your mind you really benefit more than just the marginalized group as well that will benefit from that thought design that you have i think microsoft had a very good definition of being for me as impairment so you know you can have 
permanent impairments, or you can have impairments that are temporary. For example, you can be someone who born without a limb, or you can be someone who you played hockey and then yeah, fell like on your arm, my wrist your... snapped in half, or whatever, right? and that's my shooting hand, right? Yeah, I can't play Call of Duty because I can't grip a controller for a month. That's like a temporary impairment. So if people figured out a way to build controllers that allow people with different forms of abilities to be able to be included in that gaming experience, it also benefits people who have temporary impairments too. The same lens can be taken to pretty much any sorts of product that we're building, right? If we think about all the challenges that different people face, we can solve for them. But once again, like you touched on this earlier, you need to have those lenses made available for you, right? Like within your team, you might not have that. Partner with people who have that insight. Learn what it's like to have that challenge in front of you. Speak with the audiences and the users who are probably shut out of those experiences. What's preventing you from being able to enjoy the game? What's preventing mm-hmm. you from not being able to participate in this experience? And then try to solve yeah. for that. As you mentioned, Microsoft, mm-hmm. I had to go look it up because I, I remember it making waves. And I, I might have seen it in action once or twice, but that adaptive controller made a lot of waves because mm-hmm. it opened up the interface to the game for a whole entire group of people that didn't couldn't handle the regular controls, right? Or the default controls. Exactly. Yeah. And, and having this sort of push across the industry benefits everyone, right? Like setting up a standard that, you know, game companies aspire to encompass with the games that they're building makes the industry overall a much better place for players to be part of. So there's definitely a benefit to also not just have one company push in one direction and having you know everyone collaborate and share knowledge and, and expertise with each other. So I think that there are a lot of industry-wide initiatives that are taking place right now. And uh, there are a couple of really incredible people, uh, user researchers at, at Google making a push and collaborating with people across the industry. On, Is there on a group of people assembled around this initiative or goal? One of the, the probably biggest initiatives for accessibility in games is the um, IGDA, Accessibility in Games Special Interest Group. They've been doing a lot of work in this area, but we've seen also a lot of industry-wide initiatives starting to crop up, right? People are very willing to talk to each other, share their knowledge and experiences to make games a lot more accessible and enjoyable by a larger audience. So this is one area which, you know, I admittedly I'm interested in, but I still have you know, a long ways to learn, right? Game accessibility is like a huge area and it's like a whole new topic. Of- and it's young. Yeah, but it's great, right? To see people take interest and have their voices heard. Hey, did you forget about a whole bunch of other people who could also yeah. enjoy your games? Because, yeah, talk to them too. Because I don't know what led you into games, and and I'm curious how you broke in. So, interestingly, I started playing games pretty early, only because my dad decided to invest into getting a PC. For the, mm-hmm. we weren't we weren't well off, right? Like the reason why we actually managed to afford to buy a PC was because my grandfather had won the lottery. 
he gave us. Are you us, serious? Are you yeah. serious? Yeah. You won yeah. the lottery? My grandpa did, right? So Wait, he gave what, us. Like which lottery? Lottery in Malaysia. It wasn't like the, the, the main jackpot, right? But it was like a, a, a sum of money. And then he was like, hey, here's a treat yourself kind of thing. Wow. <laughs> and I my don't know dad, any lottery winners. So now I get to put you in the bucket of, yo, I, I know a lottery winner. And she's <laughs> killing it. She's, she's like, Google, doing things. No, it's my grandpa, right? My grandpa gave my dad a lump sum of money. Um, hey, treat yourself, treat the kids. And my dad made the right investment in, in buying a PC. Yeah. So we were like, oh, wow. PC. Exactly. And that's where, you know, I, I started playing games and, and was exposed to playing games because the PC wasn't meant for playing games, right? Like my dad <laughs> wanted us to learn. Of course. How do Here's you use a word processor. <laughs> Here's a graphics program. Here's yeah, but of course do we find how to play games. It, it... Yeah, <laughs> so that's how I started playing games. And then after high school, when I had to figure out what I wanted to do in life, I had a choice between learning to be an accountant <laughs> or oh picking up computer science, which I, in all honesty, had zero knowledge of. I knew how to use a basic. PC, I could use DOS, but that was it. Like I, I had really poor or almost non-existent computer operating knowledge. And when so I found out... You had a few command line skills. Yeah. <laughs> I knew how to like put up the modem. I knew how to use IRC but and ICQ, but that's Good it, right? IRC and ICQ. <clears throat> that wow. doesn't count for anything. <laughs> sure, sure. If you well, wanted that, to go well, that's back to your thing. social skills, right? Social <laughs> yeah. Design. Yeah. Always yeah. trying to build communities. <laughs> started off mm. really early it started because i was playing games with my brother right like the the old school side by side there was streets of rage yes was... fuck yeah <laughs> Look, did you play the new one no not yet it's pretty good it's surprisingly good it's nostalgic and good at the same time <laughs> yeah that double dragon right all the the cop experiences on the same keyboard and like us like fighting over like the limited space with each other yeah. that was us going up yeah that was like my co-op multiplayer experience that's gotta yeah, help like... your dexterity for sure at least your finger your hand dexterity <laughs> yeah exactly oh um, but i conned my parents into thinking i was taking a computer science course at, <laughs> in at, college was it high school or college okay you're at college, college. yeah majoring in computer science yeah computer science majoring in game design <laughs> I convinced my you parents. You had a game design program? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We were one of the first universities that had a proper game design course. So this was multimedia university in Malaysia. People were just building up the syllabus as we went along. There wasn't really an industry to speak of. Yeah, you know, there I were feel like that's companies. early. I feel like you guys are early oh, in the game yeah. design space. Wow. Yeah. Because yeah. this was, when was this? This was like what? Like early um, mid-2000s? Early, Early 2000s, 2000s. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You guys are like trailblazing. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So we had that course. I, I, I took that. And then ever since then, I've been working in the games industry. So I started off working in smaller companies in Malaysia and then working my way across the region. Ubisoft Singapore was the first company that I moved out of the country of. It was just drive across the state line. Is it dramatically different once you cross the border? Is it like to Ontario? Like, oh, the rules are amazing. <laughs> There's a, bit, a little bit of that, right? A little okay, bit of that. Okay. 
we're we're very similar Singapore and Malaysia. My first time working out of the country, I was like, wow, yeah, this sure. is great. It's my first huge AAA company, and it, yeah, it it blew my mind. And uh, ever since then, like I'm. I was really fortunate to not have to look back and, and looking back at it, I had a lot of people who really sponsored me and mentored me and put me and, and gave me lots of opportunities and because they saw the potential in me. And I'm super grateful for that. And this is why, you know, it's super important for me to be able to pay it forward to help developers have that opportunity as well, right? Knowing how hard it was to chart your path. In, that's in super industry. powerful there's a few things i want to touch on is mm-hmm. yeah this is the time to give your mentors flowers right in the off chance that they listen to this thing who knows i'm curious yeah. who you would cite as a mentor and then i, I definitely seen you making moves to pay that forward right because you're involved in a few different organizations in the mm-hmm. game development space and so definitely want you to plug that here and tell people how to get a hold of that or check it out i have had a lot of people believe in me and, and really put me in, in incredible situations, in, in incredible opportunities. I think the first probably big one was my kind of like the, the game company I worked with back in Malaysia, um, Brett Bibby and his wife, Jean Tan. So Brett now works for Unity. Um, and, and they're all based in Copenhagen. They were the ones who were a tiny company back in Malaysia. They gave me a chance in games, right? Like, gave me my break into the industry. They believed in me and, and allowed me to live that dream. And, like, the, the one of the big, massive, memorable experiences I had sure. best in your life. Nice. Shout out to Brett and Jean Tan. Yeah. Helping you get in or, like... What what would you say? Just like giving you the the confidence to keep going, yeah, keep doing to even it. Believe in setting up a game studio in Malaysia, right? It's like for the the longest time they were kind of like the biggest games firm in the country. I want to say one of the earliest. And what studio game was that? Brains. Yeah, Game Brains. Oh, I know Game you know Brains. Game Brains. They're super tiny. I feel like I've seen their logo. I know, but, you know, they were making a lot of, um, they were a third-party developer for Atari. So they made a whole bunch of, like, you know, tiny GBA games back in the days. We made, like, sports game ports for the PS2 and the GameCube. Is it, like, a blue and green logo? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Game Brains. So it was really strange because we were a, a company in Malaysia making sports games for an American audience. So we were making backyard baseball. If you grew up playing that, yeah, it was probably yeah. made by Game Brains. <laughs> Holy cow. Backyard basketball, which was really strange. Right? Like We were making games that we knew very little about. <laughs> That's great design, right? Because uh, you have to research. <laughs> You'd be surprised. That's not the first time I hear of a non-baseball country making a baseball game. And that's where I met yeah, and that's where I met Jin. That's where you met Jin? Oh, at, exactly. at he was Brain. the concept art lead oh. <laughs> on the Backyard series that we worked on. I just want to pause and say that is a beautiful story. Meeting your significant other on the job. That's fantastic. I didn't know that at all. Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I figured it might make for 
really interesting story. You applied to Ubisoft Singapore. You had a friend. You had you had connections. No, so you know when the company was you know winding down, um, when Game Brains was winding down, this is where you know like Brett and Gene really went the extra mile as well. They hooked us up with um, Ubisoft. They heard that they were coming into the region and they were setting up a studio. So as they were winding down, they made sure that they transitioned all of their staff onto other available positions. So that's how we were able to transition so smoothly from Game Brains in Malaysia to Ubisoft Singapore. And that was another gesture that I, I really, truly appreciated of them. They, they really took care of us like family, sure. but everyone had that heart and that passion and, and just looked out for each other. So yeah, there was a feeling that you, it, it's hard to like, recapture in the large corporation sure. right like in the in the triple a size studio it's a bit hard to capture that that camaraderie but that was like my early experience in the field would you because it, it's a common path you see this people come from small development indie development into triple a and then venture on mm-hmm. wherever it's very common i've seen people only work in triple a and then want to go do smaller projects smaller mm-hmm. scale to be more intimate, more hands-on, more control, wear multiple mm-hmm. hats. Having come mm-hmm. from that and then jumping into AAA and having built yourself a nice rapport at, at all the major players, right? Like what? You've been at Ubisoft, you've been at EA, you've been at Warner Brothers, been at Google. Mm-hmm. You scared Google away from game <laughs> development. I don't know what you guys did. And, and so would you ever go back to... I don't want to say smaller development, but I guess I, what I want to say is like a smaller yeah. team, right? Like, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, want to go back to, to that. Yeah, I yeah. think, you know, I do miss being in a smaller, more close-knit team where everyone knows each mm-hmm. other's names. Everyone, you know, are able to have a deeper rapport with each other. And I do miss that, right? Like the time will come for sure, I think. You know where I'll I'll go back to a smaller outfit and work in a in a smaller closer knit team, but for now I think because of the the area in which I'm I'm really passionate in, which is pro social design, what I do works well in a larger team because of the size yeah. of the endeavor. But yeah, I do foresee that one day I'm gonna. <laughs> hang my coat up and it's like, okay, it's time to go back to the roots and work, <laughs> work with a smaller team. Yeah. Build up a shop over there, build up mm-hmm. a team. But right now the industry needs you, mate. We need you to help us figure out these massive problems <laughs> and, and, and show us the way, man, or build some, at least show us some different things that we can do mm-hmm. differently. That would be the dream. You were in Singapore, you were in France for a bit, you ended up in Montreal, mm-hmm. and then you seem to have found home in Montreal in the in the cold <laughs> north Canada winters. I I don't blame you because the development scene in Montreal, I say, is like the biggest in the whole continent. I would argue the world. There's so much de- density of development in such a small mm-hmm. space. Yeah. It's a pretty creative atmosphere and mm-hmm. environment. It's a cool place to develop. Like I would say that I learned a lot in the three years that I was at, at in Warner Brothers Montreal, thanks to a big part from you, 
a lot of Ubisoft blood there, a lot of um, IDOS Montreal mm-hmm. blood, just a lot. Uh, even like the behavior guys were yeah. awesome, and so many more since I've left. Like this, probably twenty more studios that have cropped yeah. up over there. It's it is a, a growing city for the games industry. Like year on year, you have new people coming to town and hiring and and looking to hire experienced and talented devs. But it's great for the ecosystem to have kind of like the the investment from both the government and, and all these companies that come in and they see, they see the value and the talent available in the city. So that's really amazing as well. And yeah, it's, I think it's established itself as a, a very games industry centric city. Yeah, I always say that it's, and it, you see it in the Scandinavian countries too, mm-hmm. like these environments. And I, I think I'm, I'm going to quote Jade Raymond, right? I'm pretty sure I'm stealing this from her, but she says something to the effect of, the cold, harsh winters keeping people home force you to grow your imagination and your creativity. And that's why you see so much creative energy in these cold countries. <laughs> and it leads to people who like to build game engines, right? <laughs> in the Scandinavian countries. Yeah. I, I also do want to see, right? Like, you know, we are starting to see a lot of very exciting work coming out from other regions in the in the world i think as we create and then create more tools and make games development more accessible to to different people we're able to see just the richness and the variety of games that are coming out right and i i think this is a, a really exciting time to be in the games industry publishing games are it's a process that's getting easier and easier compared to yep, yeah and there are lots of different platforms to help developers get their work out there. And I, I do hope that we see a lot more places who never had that same opportunity start to step up and, and create brand new content that we've not seen or experienced before. Like, I can't even predict. Yeah. I can't know something I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to be, you know, just completely have my mind blown, right? And the, the level of quality and content that's going to come out from a lot of these emerging markets, it's going to be a, a very exciting time for sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's amazing mm-hmm. things coming mm-hmm. out of Africa, South America, yeah. a bunch of Asian countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thanks in big part to mobile, right? Mobile made it very exactly. accessible. And I, I'm surprised too. It feels like for the first time ever, Nintendo let the gates down and let a lot of these games come onto their marketplace. Exactly. And so yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. And, and these games are just just indie games. We've seen a lot of these games start to the main stage, like Genshin Impact, for example. Man, that caught the oh, world yeah. by storm, right? <laughs> I love some Genshin Impact. Yeah. It's beautiful. It is. It's been on my like queue. Yeah. Like I know once I bite in, I'm probably not <laughs> leaving anytime. Love to see more exciting games come out of all these new markets for sure. Tell me more about the organizations that you're involved in, yeah. the role they play, and how do people get yeah, in? Yeah, so um, the one that I'm you know, most active in is Pixels. They're a uh, Montreal-based organization to help women and marginalized genders get into the games industry. I help out here and there, um, but I'm one of the mentorship coordinators. So we run everything from workshops. We used to do mentorship pairings to help 
people connect with mentors in the games industry based on the uh, domains in which they're interested in. If you're a writer, we try to match you up with a, a writer in the field who can potentially give people who are interested uh, an idea of what to expect and how to break in, into the industry. The goal there is to take a very proactive role in making sure that people have the skills and the tools they need to get into the industry and, and understand what to expect. I've really been really grateful for the community that they've built in the city. You know, I've met a lot of women and, and close friends through Pixels and realizing that we really have some very awesome talent in the industry that you know may not have the, the same level of representation as they should have in the industry. And you know, it's my dream to, to hopefully see them continue to grow and be able to impact more people um, to these times. Yeah. Sweet. I'll definitely link to Pixels in the show notes. Check that out. No matter who you are, you can always benefit from a mentor that's doing the thing you hope to be doing, right? And there's always another level to go. Being able to have you as a mentor is pretty powerful, I would say. Happy to always you know, talk about a lot of the topics that, that we touched on tonight. And even more, right? Always available for that. Yeah, the breadth of your game design knowledge is, it would have been crazy to try to dive into it all with the time we have, but I want you to know that you're welcome on the show. You have a lifetime pass. You're welcome back anytime. And there's a ritual I'm trying to build. And is if you had a good time, hmm. if there's anybody that you would nominate to sit in the hot seat and fall out of play area. I do want to nominate a person who I met through my time working here at Google. Um, her name is Paula Esquardia. Um, she's done some incredible work for the climate change special interest group. The team recently released a really incredible in-depth article on how games can have a role to play to reduce uh, climate change. And it is highly what? inspirational and uh, it would be great to have her be on your show and to, to share what she does because it's hyper fascinating okay if you vouch for paula i um, i'm gonna i'm gonna send the invite her way she doesn't know me i don't know her but i look very forward to meeting her and understanding how games game development can contribute to helping out the climate yeah. change situation i'm skeptical yeah. but be, have your mind blown because it is incredible so you can play games and save the world <laughs> at the same time hell yeah tell me more <laughs> tell me more where do i sign up awesome may thank you so much for taking time out and stopping by i want to give you a chance to promote anything you're working on or let people know where they can connect with you or your initiatives or your organization. So, um, I do want to say thank you, John, for having me on your show. It's been such a blast just talking about so many different things. I hope that if I ever do come back on the show, I can turn the mirror back on you and have you share your wealth of experience and your journey in the industry because I think that you have some very exciting stories to share with your audience as well so one day it will be the john diaz versus john diaz <laughs> <laughs> yeah one day what do they call it like a mirror, exactly, mirror match exactly that would be really really cool that, that's that's not a bad idea right like i think when we get to a point maybe we can do like a a big zoom call with a bunch of people that have been on the yeah, show like and we could just throw things at each other right like hot potato style like all right hey you ask this person and then 
that person asks another person and we go around. That could be fun. <laughs> I had another buddy come on the show, Jameson, and he 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 put a cool idea out there. He's hey, let's have a if GDC or whatever conference is gonna be virtual that we can do a, a watch party kind of thing. Oh, that would, but back to the question, is there any cause that I want to plug? Definitely um, Pixels that I'm, I'm involved in. There's Game & Color Montreal for... I'm on their Facebook exactly. group. I wonder, do they have other things like a Discord or uh, anything like that? Not that I'm aware of. No, it's still a small, close-knit community. So if you're a yeah. person of color, BIPOC, and want to find other developers who share you uh, you just need a place to a safe place to vent that's mm. one group to, to look out for there's also if you're in the region Malaysia and Singapore there's the Malaysia and Singapore allies and games discord group that's run by uh, a bunch of different folks in the region Gwen Go nice. being one of them you say that one more time then so Malaysia, Malaysia and Singapore um, allies and games Malaysian Singapore mm-hmm. allies and games. Cool. We're gonna definitely throw the the link into the show notes the to get into that Discord mm-hmm. group. Give me them links. Awesome, awesome. All right, May. I'm gonna let you go because I got all. I took all the time and then <laughs> it's some. All good. Farewell, May, and I see you on the other side of the Google Stadia. I can look forward to seeing what your next. Thank step you is. so much for having me on the show, John. All the best to you, and thank you for the amazing work. Man, there's so much to live ops. I've always appreciated how Mailing is able to take complex systems and make them digestible to anyone, including me. Live ops is all the rage these days as games as a services take off and look to grow and cater to more people trying to tap into that precious market share from WoW, Destiny, League, Apex Legends, Rainbow Six Siege, Fall Guys, all the way to Fortnite. Not to mention all the Twitch streamers and viewers out there and managing their community. If you let destructive behavior enter, it spreads fast if left unchecked. And the earlier we mindfully work to protect from all that and instill a self-policing culture, the better the experience will be for all of us. There hasn't been one clubhouse conversation I've been a part of where this is not a key topic on how we can be more welcoming, more respectful, more inclusive, and they're constantly looking to get answers from us, the developers, on why we haven't built systems to help manage communities, as well as evolving our character creation systems so that they allow for more self-expression and more representation from our player base. By the time this episode is out, Mei Ling will be a free agent looking for the next place to bring her talents to, so don't miss an opportunity to at least pitch her your project and vision before she's off the market again. Just saying, she's a rare talent. Debuting on March 15th, the fourth episode of Out of Play Area, a good friend and huge inspiration for me putting this podcast together is fellow Full Sail alumni, esports director, Twitch affiliate, and producer of one of my favorite podcasts, Game Dev with a Shot of Jameson, You'll hear Jameson Dural walk us through his journey getting through Full Sail's young game design program and breaking into the industry before he even graduated. Then we'll talk about his time at Oddworld. We'll talk about his time at EA working on The Simpsons and Godfather, some of my favorite games over there, to leveling up to become a design director at Volition. And finally, coming back full circle to head up Full Sail's esports operations. 
If you have any thoughts, comments, questions for me or guests, you can email me at john at autoplayarea.com or call in and leave a message at 760-981-0311. Both links are readily available at the top of our homepage at autoplayarea.com. Also, if you're a game developer and you have a story you think could help a fellow dev, just under those email and phone buttons, there's a link to book a meeting one-on-one with me on Catalan. Please make sure you get approval from your studio PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Please make sure to subscribe and follow so you see what developer pushes Out of Play Area next time. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, John Diaz. Till next time, devs, stay safe, stay true, stay creative.